Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Informatics Bites, the podcast where we talk with our members about innovation in pharmacy, hot topics in informatics, and new technology. My name is Terry Alborano, and today we will be chatting with Scott Anderson, Pharmacy Supervisor at Hennepin Healthcare, David Cesir, Pharmacy Enterprise Director, Business Operations, Procurement, and Information Systems at WVU Medicine, and G. Mathen, Director of Pharmacy Clinical Applications and Technical Services at Texas Children's Hospital. We will be talking to these three clinicians about informatics and operations pearls for COVID-19 associated EUAs. Thanks for joining us today. There have been several EUA products approved in 2020, and we expect there to be several more EUAs approved in 2021. I'm here with these three experts to learn how they are leveraging information systems and automation to overcome some of the challenges associated with managing EUA products. Our first question is for Scott. Scott, is there a documented process for managing EUAs within health system pharmacy and informatics systems? And can you describe the steps for managing EUAs your organization has outlined? Thanks, Terry. While an EUA medication gets an authorization by the government and is often accompanied by a list of criteria to use, the process for actually implementing and using the EUA medication is largely has been left up to the health systems to define. Without a well-outlined process to follow, we here at Hennepin Healthcare looked to our experiences with investigational drug protocols and criteria, as well as PNT committee approvals for new formulary requests to set the framework for the EUA medication use process. In the case of remdesivir, which was the first EUA that our health system addressed back in May of 2020, our first steps were to engage our PNT committee to approve use at our facility and to assemble an interdisciplinary subgroup of our larger health system incident command that would begin discussion of how we would actually onboard and begin using the medication. It was really interesting for remdesivir that we had a few investigational trials active when the EUA happened in our electronic health record was too specific to the trial criteria to be able to use it as a starting point for EUA treatment build. In addition, because demand far outweighed supply, we were allocating full treatment courses on a per patient basis, as well as refining our criteria uh, for who can actually receive this drug as we assessed our outcomes data. Our infectious disease and pharmacy teams were vigilant in ensuring appropriate use of treatment. So we used a combination of electronic health record reporting, decision support tools, and spreadsheet inventory tracking to allocate courses of therapy and reallocate in remaining inventory when patients were discontinued or switched over to a trial. A similar set of first steps were taken for the EUA monoclonal antibody therapies, but since this medication is administered in the clinic setting in our institution, it added another layer of complexity for the planning, especially when it came to assessing our readiness to administer using the EHR in our clinics. The EUA vaccines have added additional challenges in that we involved our vaccine committee to develop vaccination guidelines, data reporting frameworks, and vaccine information statements. Really, anything we developed specifically for any other vaccine, we needed to develop for the COVID vaccines as well. Also, we needed to create different strategies for employee vaccinations compared to patient vaccinations, as we were planning to do document these in different ways and administer them in different settings. 
overall, for managing the technology and informatics aspects of EUA medications, we had to consider if and how we would use our electronic health record for scheduling, ordering, administering, charging, and reporting, and also how we could best integrate our safety technologies, such as barcode-assisted medication preparation, barcoded medication administration, and smart infusion pumps. Thanks, Scott. That's really great information. Appreciate you sharing all of that. And that, that's a great lead-in to our next question for G. G, how are EUA medications built in smart infusion pump software? And is there a different process for institutions with EHR interoperability? Thank you, Terry, for that question. And uh, thank you, Scott, for leading up into this section. The answer, in short, is smart pump interoperability and smart pump libraries and databases are in and of itself a complicated process. Um, in order for us to refresh a pump for in our institution, we usually have it set as a quarterly update. Uh, it's not feasible to update our pumps on a daily basis. So what we learned right away with the EUA settings is we needed to work with our nursing teams to provide communication, update our EMR labels for any specifics needed to use the pump and have our guardrails built for emergency administration of medications without using interoperability. This functionality though will increase as we get to see more and more EUA medications released. So there must be a strong strategy going forward. At Texas Children's, that strong strategy comes in with collaboration and communication. As we have learned that the EUA medications are limited in what data that we get especially in a pediatric setting. So researching with our clinicians to understand how we should set our guardrails to ensure safety at the patient level is critical. Working together as a multidisciplinary team to understand the ramifications of each specific medication is key to the success of the smart pump system. We rely heavily on our EMR to provide uh, guidance to nursing. Uh, we're proud to say we have accomplished well over 95% barcode med, med administration compliance, and we are well over 93% compliant in the use of guardrails with our smart pumps. So based upon our work that we've done so far within our institution, we believe that when these EUA is clear and we build them into the pumps before the quarterly updates, we're going to rely on effective communication and feedback between pharmacy and nursing to keep our patients safe. That's great, G. Thanks for that. You spoke in there a lot about safety. A lot of these EUA products lack a barcode. So how do organizations overcome this obstacle and still safely dispense, administer, and track these EUA products that lack a, a barcode? Well, that's a good that's a good thing we we realize the challenges of the lack of barcodes so what we've done is we've looked at two systems so one if for our pharmacy workflow systems we've created a over packaging label and since the volume hasn't been high our inventory teams will put a over packaging label on the specific vials so that we can use our pharmacy workflow management systems and then we have the pharmacy workflow management system work in collaboration with our EHR to provide an order specific barcode for nursing smart pump integration. 
and smart pump administration. So the key is is having all of these systems work together and having used what's worked in the past because having uh, not having a barcode is not new to EUA medications. We've seen that happen in other areas as well. And so those philosophies and those practices are just reused again based upon what's worked effectively for us. And many institutions out there have that same problem and they have probably their own individual solution to resolving that problem. Thanks, G. We talked a lot here about caring for patients and making sure we're safely administering these EUA products, but there's also a lot of documentation associated with managing EU products. This question's for Dave. Dave, how do you leverage information systems to help ensure compliance to these documentation requirements? Thanks, Terry. Once these products were approved by our enterprise PNT, we merged the EUA agents into our investigative clinical drug pathways. The pathways developed allowed us to capture and document consent within multiple places in the electronic health record, as well as administrations, supportive medications that may have been administered, along with any drug reactions that were encountered. Now on the vaccine side, it was a little bit more complicated and we are utilizing the VAM system which is the vaccine administrative management system provided by the CDC. For COVID vaccines, the system helps us to provide documentation electronically and also captures consent. VAMS is an online tool to manage vaccine administration from the time the vaccine arrives at the pharmacy or clinic to when it is administered to a patient. As we identified essential and high priority workers initially, we needed to receive vaccine they were bulk loaded into the VAM system. We developed a reservation process that was used for recipients that could schedule vaccination appointments for their first dose. After receiving the first dose, the recipient is emailed via the system to select an appointment for their second dose, approximately three weeks later or the time provided by the guidelines. The system prompts the recipient to enter any adverse reactions that are encountered post-vaccination. As our next step, we are working to integrate the VAMP system into our electronic health record as we begin to vaccinate the community, which we started last week. Thanks, Dave. Gee, this question is for you. You know, we're going to go back to you again, because I think folks are interested in hearing how, you know, the EUA process may differ for institutions that care for pediatric patients. Can you explain how these EUA processes may differ for this patient population? Yeah, Terry, that's a good thing. And, and as Scott pointed out earlier, it basically um, starts with how we build the medication and how Dave talked about um, getting PNT involved. And so I would say for us, it is specifically important to have our clinical pharmacy specialist work to understand the EUA that comes out look at data surrounding pe the pediatric population, um, look at the FDA guidelines based upon what we're receiving, look at the manufacturer's recommendations, work in connection with a strong PNT leadership team to see how these medications can impact our patients. So one of the good things about it being at a pediatric institution, a lot of people don't uh, realize this, is that we have patients from 
neonates all the way to adults. And that allows us to have a broad spectrum of understanding and for the use of medications. And so our clinicians are key in the understanding specifically the value of the medications, putting specific restrictions uh, from an ordering perspective, monitoring perspective, and follow-up perspective. All of these come into play in a pediatric institution. And and sometimes, as you know, it's challenging because there is no clinical information. There is no specific guideline that tells us what we can and cannot do. Uh, and so the importance of that clinical team working together with physicians and understanding the, the risk versus the benefit for the patient is key to our success in a pediatric setting. That's very interesting to me. Thanks for sharing that, G. And Dave, you and I have talked, you know, privately when we've had conversations around how you're you're dealing in your day-to-day job managing some of these recently approved EUAs and vaccine distribution. You've talked a lot about restrictions associated with EUA products. Can you describe some of the restrictions you have seen with the recent EUA products? and how your organization approaches managing these restrictions. I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to keep everybody on the same page is this process has morphed over time. Uh, there's been a, many changes uh, from week to week. So I think that's the biggest challenge is just keep everybody on the same page. The restrictions that we commonly see involve patient status, inpatient versus outpatient, onset of symptoms, length of therapy, and any modifications to the restrictions of therapy. We work closely with our clinical teams, especially those that are dedicated to the COVID therapeutics that are are being developed and restriction criteria in the electronic health record. We wanna make sure that they're mirrored with any guidelines within the FDA uh, fact sheets that are put out. At our institution, a process for criteria for use was led by our uh, system pharmacy director for utilization and our infectious disease clinical pharmacy team. Modifications were made to be consistent with updates sent by the West Virginia Board of Medicine to physicians practicing in the state. Again, trying to make sure everybody was on the same page. Products and associated restrictions then were built into our clinical information system. Builds for the medication also had location restrictions so they cannot be accidentally ordered in areas in which they were not approved. This was especially important when the monoclonals came out. As a side note to all that, our preparation guidelines were updated multiple times with communication sent out to our staff as needed and posted to our SharePoint site so that all folks could both see the preparation guidelines and also any restrictions that we had in place. These are also built into our our clinical health record, our health system, and updated in a timely manner working with our IT team. Thank you, Dave. Again, I'm not a frontline pharmacist. I, I work in industry and to me, you all sharing this information, just the leadership that our profession has taken during this pandemic and, and you sharing these this information, it's just really exciting to me, just how our profession has really stepped up. Thanks, Dave. Also, we've talked about billing considerations and some of the complications associated with that. Can you explain some of the billing considerations associated with EUAs and how you're dealing with those? Billing for products is always challenging when times are are normal and good. But with the EUAs, especially, it's been a challenge, especially as products have gone 
from being provided free to being products that we would get from our wholesaler. Uh, Remdesivir is one that comes to mind. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued EUAs to permit emergency use of these products for the treatment of mild to moderate um, COVID-19 adults and pediatric patients with positive results for COVID testing who are at high risk for progressing to severe COVID-19 inter hospitalization. Limitations for these products is not authorized for use in patients who are hospitalized due to COVID-19. Medicare does not provide payment for monoclonal antibodies products that are received for free. If the healthcare providers begin to purchase these monoclonal antibodies, the CMS anticipates setting payment rates, but as of now, they have not. Medicare beneficiaries pay no cost for using the monoclonal antibodies, so there's no copay, no deductible. Now, as far as the infusions go, the healthcare providers can bill for the administration of the monoclonal infusion on a single claim for COVID-19 or submit claims as part of roster billing, according to the FDA guidelines. Healthcare, as part of that process, process, healthcare providers are expected to maintain appropriate and supportive documentation attending to medical necessity of service. This is included for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 patients at risk for progressive to severe COVID-19 in our hospitalization, and also to include the name of the practitioner who ordered or made the decision to administer the medication. Healthcare providers can only bill for the administration of the monoclonal antibody infusion when doses are provided by the government without charge. In addition, generally, uh, emergency kits are available for any adverse drug reactions to the infusion and uh, required medications are mitigated and also are uh, billable. For remdesivir, CMS issue, issued an add-on payment, NCTAP, under the Medicare inpatient prospective payment system effective on November 2nd. The Medicare program will provide enhanced payment for eligible inpatient cases that involve use of certain new products with current FDA approval or emergency use authorization. We had some challenges initially with, with remdesivir as it kind of went from being a free product to one that we purchased from our wholesaler. What we did at our facility was what we distributed did the full treatment course for the free product to the nursing station. We also entered that as a separate line item in our um, emergency health record or our electronic health record. So when the, it was converted to a paid product, we were able to run reports to ensure that folks that got free product were not, charges were not posted to their account. So one of the other things we did, I think is kind of of interest too, is like there's questions around what do you do with your budget? Budgets are set in, set in the early part of the year. So it's really kind of hard to predict what your budget should be for COVID-19 drugs. So again, what we did at our institution is we set up a, center, a separate cost center for COVID-related products and supplies. Um, and, we, and we were able to charge those products out to that cost center. So that way it kind of kept our budget intact for the year, but also could put in place an accounting system for the expenses associated with treatment of COVID-19. That's a great strategy, setting up that separate separate budget, Dave, and um, thanks for sharing that information uh, to others that that may be of interest to. Scott, the EUAs making the most news right now are COVID-19 vaccines, and, you know, 
healthcare workers have been getting vaccinated for, you know, well over a month now, and we're all preparing for the COVID-19 vaccination campaign. How are you preparing to vaccinate patients and how is that different than vaccinating employees at your healthcare system? Thanks, Terry. Uh, we've made great strides here in getting the vast majority of our employees vaccinated, but we've done this almost completely in-house with pop-up clinics located in multiple locations throughout the hospital or by actually going out to our community settings to vaccinate employees in their workplaces. Uh, and on those on-site locations, the majority of our employee vaccinations were first come, first serve with just a structure for only a small number of scheduled appointments for patients who had severe uh, allergy risk. Um, since we have continuously progressed to include new groups of the next priority levels in our vaccination rollout, we've been able to estimate how many vials to prepare for each clinic each day, while ending with a comfortable number of leftover vials um, to prevent any waste throughout the rest of the week. Um, but when it comes to vaccinating patients, we're gonna to have to take an entirely different approach with the biggest challenges being locating physical space to conduct vaccinations and also scheduling patients for these appointments. To help resolve these issues, uh, a large interdisciplinary ambulatory COVID vaccine committee has been created here at Hennepin, uh, along with multiple subgroups to develop strategies for communication, patient outreach, clinic staffing, pharmacy storage and distribution, and health system informatics. We've been partnering with our community to find offsite locations such as high school gymnasiums and unused clinic spaces to set up patient vaccination clinics. And also due to the tremendous supply constraints we're seeing for the vaccines, uh, we're making the change fully from walk-ups to appointment only. We're leveraging our EHR, not only for the documentation of these patient vaccinations, um, but also to identify eligible patients um, from historical data in our system, um, send communication about the clinics to these patients and coordinate the scheduling of their appointments. Um, and at the end of it, reporting the details about the doses we've administered. Data from the EHR is going to be crucial for submitting the required data to our State Department of Health and also for helping us identify and report adverse events um, that should be reported to the federal system. Uh, vial management for these offsite to be far more challenging, um, just given the number of offsite locations and the dynamic nature of having patient appointments. So making sure that we have the best information from our EHR about which patients will be coming and at what days will be crucial for ensuring that we don't waste any doses. It feels like the information we have right now about supply and even who can be vaccinated is exceptionally dynamic right now. So developing our EHR reporting and scheduling tools to be nimble enough to keep up with ever-changing demands, especially on an extremely tight timeline, has definitely been a challenge and continues to be a challenge as we keep moving forward. Yes, I agree, Scott. And, you know, also equally impressive is really the ownership that our profession has taken in the COVID-19 vaccination campaign and continues to take. And um, just, just really excited about our profession and the role we're playing in this pandemic. Dave, during a recent conversation we had, uh, you mentioned that within your organization, administering EUA products to patients, an important consideration that you faced was where these products would be administered to patients. 
Can you explain what you what you mean by this and why this is such an important consideration for organizations? Sure, Terry. This really came into play when the monoclonal infusions came out and the length of the infusion. So with those, they were specific to the outpatient areas. And we had to consider where we could actually physically give this within the institution to not only ensure it went to the right population, but also to have some consistency across the health system. So we have 14 hospitals in our health system. Four to five of them are larger facilities that can facilitate uh, larger populations that have extended infusions. Others are critical access hospitals, which do not. So questions arose around the resource availability and the time requirements. Questions such as how do we protect other patients uh, who didn't have COVID from, um, from potential exposure. The smaller sites elected to use their emergency rooms as infusions and, and cornered off beds in the areas for administration. This was potentially problematic and because of the length of the infusion, it really did negate the use of those beds for emergency use. The concern here was tying up those beds when they would be needed, which was somewhat unpredictable. At the larger sites, we elected to set up infusion centers specifically to the monoclonal infusions, which took some effort in not only setting up those areas to get staffing, also to get the medications there, and also the appropriate documentation for that, for those medications and also the uh, supportive care that was needed. So our larger hospitals went with that option. We also started to partner with skilled nursing facilities in the event that we could try to head off patients from coming to the facility, if we could treat them at the skilled nursing facilities before they would hit the hospitals. So we're in a process of doing that, which kind of, which actually did slow down the number of patients that, are, that arrived in our ED departments. So that's working fairly well. Uh, we've seen less of these products used over time as the vaccines are rolling out. So it's less of a concern now than it was when we initially uh, had, had the, uh, when these first came out to the marketplace. Yes, it may, you know, come up again as more products, uh, EUA products are approved. So thanks for sharing, Dave. Gee, one thing that I find interesting about your story throughout the pandemic is you know, you're a pediatric hospital that had to begin to start managing adult COVID patients. And I, I want you to share how informatics systems helped your hospital prepare for accepting adult patients. Yeah, Terry, that's a, that's a good question. So to give a little background on that, uh, we are in the Texas Medical Center in Houston, Texas. So we have a lot of adult institutions surrounding us. And during the first wave, what we saw were the beds that were filling up incredibly fast. So Texas Children's said we would be willing to help out our sister facilities in the medical center. And so we allocated up to 15 beds right away. And immediately those beds were taken over. The challenges that we ran into were how were we going to be doing order entry, verification, dispensing to an adult population? Did we have all the medications that were needed because our formulary might not have covered all the adult medications? So we were really, really in a good place due to a couple of things from an information technology perspective. Ten years ago, I would say we probably would not have been able to handle this well, but our journey to complete uh, 
safety to the patients in all aspects of information technology is was crucial. So what we were able to do is use tools within our EMR to do, um, I think Dave talked about it earlier, to be able to do order context for our adult patients. We identified medications that could be used across the board and didn't necessarily need to be added to the formulary. We worked with our partners to get order sets for treatments built in and added to the EMR. We uh, added quickly added pharmacy workflow management into the process so that we could prepare those medications accurately. Um, some of the challenges that we ran into, and I think Dave kind of mentioned this too, is that the patients going to the room, staffing, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of adult nurses that we could put into the play. So we had to do, um, you know, a little teaching up on the fly for that. Supplies in the room, we, simple thing, for example, we use um, automated dispensing systems to track our narcotics wastage. And we would uh, kind of have the narcotic wastage be done back at our dispensing cabinet when it was completed. But what we started seeing is, is anything that went into a room that was COVID positive patient, we trashed all of that inside that specific room itself. And so simple things, we had to come up with different ways to approach that. But information technology, once again, helped us do that. We had closed loops system put into our EMR that allows the nurse to document the administration and the wastage in the EMR and then interface that back to the ADS. So that came in very effectively to complement all the information technology to support adult patients. Now, was it a challenge? Yes. Was it interesting? Yes. And are we still learning new things? Yes. And I think this is going to continue until we get through this. We have a, a second wave that's hitting Houston right now, and I think pretty much most of the country. And we are prepared. I think our first run at this, we learned a lot of lessons. And we've been able to stand up things much faster than before. And a byproduct of all of this was things that we hadn't turned on. We were able to get work with our IT teams to turn it on. So the relief in making sure the patients that we could take care of in the hospital, but then also uh, turning on tel telehealth, um, we were able to move that system up very quickly so that we could free up providers that could be moved over to assist with those patients that we had uh, admitted. So I think all in all, it was a very good success. Uh, and you talked about it to the profession of pharmacy. I, th I think uh, one of the greatest things about pharmacy, I've been in it for 30 years, is that we've had technology in pharmacy much longer than many of the other programs in the hospital setting. And I think we rally around technology much, much faster than many areas. And I think that has proven successful once again in this crisis moment. I would agree. And I think it's only helped to accelerate the adoption of technology in pharmacy, as well as the healthcare system overall. That's all we have time for today. And I want to thank Scott, David, and G for joining us today to discuss informatics and operations pearls for COVID-19 associated EUAs. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Informatics Bytes. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's informatics resources. You can find member exclusive offerings in the Informatics Resource Center 
including articles, standards and guidelines, as well as practice tools for pharmacy informatics and healthcare technology related topics. Thanks again for tuning in for this session and join us here for the first Friday of every month when we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on informatics and technology. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.